And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Brothers and sisters, stay in the boat. Use your life jackets. Hold on with both hands. Avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church... First, I want to change the question. There are no homosexual members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those are going to be the ones we avoid. Doubt your doubts. Welcome to another episode of the Cognitive Dissidents Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. We, we, I, I wish I could even combine this. Let's do it this way. Uh, let's say this is a Cognitive Dissidents Podcast as well as Mormon Discussion Podcast. And there are reasons for that. I, um, those who listen to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast, you come to hear psychological mechanisms used in religion, why things work and don't work within religion, and the harm and well-being that they cause and why. And then we often tie those mechanisms back into Mormonism. And we're going to do that today. We are going to spend most of this episode not saying anything about the Mormon faith as an example, but I think this conversation is so important, and I hope I'm able to articulate it right, that I think uh, it really does apply to both venues. And so today, uh, it's my hope that you can take your time in this episode, and I'll try to um, because those because the cognitive dissonant episodes tend to be somewhat shorter uh, than Mormon discussion, but follow along, uh, listen to this episode when you have a space that you can really just sit with this and try to understand these concepts. We are going to play today on some of the audio from Sam Harris uh, and also Jordan Peterson as they uh, do a discussion slash debate. In Vancouver, it was a two-part thing, and we're going to cover maybe 15 minutes of their audio, which I think is crucial to setting up the conversation. And before we go to that audio, I want to just talk for a moment about dogma, and and dogma is is at the root of this conversation. Uh, and so let's uh, let me give you a definition of dogma. If you just do a simple Google search, dogma is is a principle or a set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. So if you think about this from within a religious system, and this, you're going to see this happens inside and outside religion. Um, there's, there's harm done 
both inside and outside religion, and that harm is connected to dogma, and that religion and non-religious dogma do play out differently at times, and also have extreme similarities. Now, dogma as a set of principles laid out by an authority as incontrovertibly true. When we think of dogma in a system, doesn't have to be religious, but any system, dogma is those things that the leaders say, like, hey, these things are true, they, they can't be questioned, this is what our system is based on, and this we're going to move forward as if these things are true, because they are. And we're going to start this conversation here with Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, again, in a debate uh, in Vancouver. And I will stop along the way, but their conversation sets up what I think is so important to our understanding of religious systems. And then at the end of the episode, we will jump into our religious system. And I want you to, for, for right now, please, please do me a favor, because you're going to constantly want to tie it into your religious system. I want you to take your religious system, and I want you just to set it off to the side so that you can understand what the conversation is as an outsider rather than an insider. And this is important. Insider-outsider dynamics are crucial to how we have this conversation. And so for now, can you please try to be an outsider? Here we go to Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. I think it's easier perhaps to gain initial agreement between people on what might constitute a generalized ethic to concentrate on what we don't want. Yeah. I'm not saying that what we do want is unimportant, but it seems to me to be harder to get a grip on. We don't want Auschwitz. We don't yeah. want the Gulag Archipelago. So, and, and there are... And those, and I would add to just closing the door to moral relativism here, those who do want Auschwitz are wrong to want Auschwitz. I mean, it's, obviously right. Auschwitz only happened because some people did want Auschwitz, not the victim side, but the perpetrator side. And so, the, the, crucially for me is the claim that, that I'm a realist, I'm a moral realist, and what, what realism means is that it's... There, that there are right and wrong answers yes. to questions of this kind, and, and, and you can not know what you're missing. In fact, we almost certainly don't know what we're missing on questions of human value. And, then, and our job is to discover just how good life can be and just what variables are making it needlessly horrible and to, to mitigate all of that and live in a, in a better and better world. Okay, well, so, okay. Yeah. So... Yeah. <clears throat> Using Auschwitz as the example here, and it's one of the two that uh, Sam Harris throws out, and I would recommend, go listen. This is a two-part, two-night discussion between these two. They're brilliant minds. One is arguing that uh, it's too difficult to make religion useful, that in the 21st century, religion should on some level be discarded. Uh, and that's Sam Harris. And Sam distinguishes between religion and spirituality. Jordan Peterson, on the other hand, argues that, yes, we have to be smart about it. Yes, we have to do it intelligently. But that religion serves a purpose that if we cast it off, we are worse for it. 
So they use the example of Auschwitz, and I simply want to set it up here by saying what they're saying is that people collectively as groups or systems cause incredible harm on other human beings. And they're setting up the discussion and saying, how do we stop that? How Because we do not want people collectively, like there's always going to be a nutcase out there who's willing to walk into a building and shoot people. There's always going to be a crazy guy who's willing to uh, make a bomb and get back at somebody or make a political statement or make a point. But how do we stop the collective harm that that a group of people within a system hurt others because of an idea, because of dogma. And uh, Sam Harris jumps in because Jordan Peterson setting up the conversation and saying like how, like we don't want an Auschwitz. We don't want those ever again. And Auschwitz is a non-religious group of people who hurt others based on dogma. And Sam Harris Uh, jumps in and acknowledges a very important point, which is that somebody wanted Auschwitz. The reason Auschwitz happened is because somebody wanted that. So just because some people want something doesn't make the thing they want good. And so as this conversation unfolds, we need to have a way in which we can take an idea, a piece of dogma, and we can unveil it that it will be allowed to be exposed as a bad idea. Now, this is crucial. When a system such as Nazi Germany holds up various ideas and says these are incontrovertibly true, that look, the white man is superior, the European man is superior, Whatever those statements are, there has to be a way for the collective inside the group because outside the group, the violence has to happen first. The harm has to happen first. Do we understand this? In other words, inside Nazi Germany, if there's not a way to put down Nazi ideology, then that ideology is allowed to do its harm first before outsiders then can respond and begin to raise a voice and squash it. The only way to squash it prior is to have it squashed insider, right? And I hope we comprehend that. So Sam Harris is saying, look, just because there's an idea doesn't make the idea good. And we certainly don't want, because there were people who wanted Auschwitz. There are people who want these collective harms to be done. And we can't just verify or validate or honor their voices simply because there's a voice of, of an idea or a collective ideology. Okay, enough there. Let's move on. Okay, so, so that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of points of agreement. So I also believe that there is a catastrophe of, of arbitrary moral injunction and that there's a catastrophe of moral relativism and that, that that has to be dealt with and that there are genuine differences between the proper way of behaving morally and, 
and, and the improper way of behaving morally. And I think that they are grounded in human universals, even though there's a wide amount of variation. So that, that's a lot of points of agreement, right? So we, we know that there's two things we want to avoid, we, conceptually speaking, which is the moral relativism and, and this kind of moral absolutism that's grounded in, in, in an arbitrary statement of facts that you identify with religious fundamentalism. I would identify that with funda fundamentalism more generally, not, not with religious fundamentalism yeah. per se, because I see it also happening, happening in secular states, let's say, like Nazi sure. Germany or, or, sure. or, or... So it doesn't seem to be religious fundamentalism per se that's crucial to your argument. So I only want to stop here and simply explain for those, because as big words are used by smart people, sometimes we... Uh, Again, it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we're not intelligent. Like, I consider myself an intelligent being. Uh, but what I have to do sometimes when people start using big terms uh, and use three or four of them in a sentence, I got to go back and just kind of sort through those. And so I want to help you do that. When we say moral injunction, we're talking about uh, a judicial process, some type of process or order that requires a person or persons to whom it is directed to do or refrain from doing a particular act. In other words, when a system gives out orders based on dogma, what is the process by which the individuals can choose to obey or refrain from carrying out that order? Now, we understand in Auschwitz, in Nazi Germany, horrible atrocities happened. And it's because, one, there's this religious dogma that cannot be challenged. And two, the reason it can't be challenged is because if somebody does challenge it, they are punished as an outsider. They are put to death. Like we know of instances where individuals stood up within the Nazi regime to the Nazi regime and a gun was put to their head and a trigger was pulled. In other words, if you want to stop great harm from being done, the system has to have a way to have its dogma challenged. And as an outsider, again, if we look at it, picking any example that's outside of our tribe, we can see that, oh yes, we definitely want to have ways in which a system's dogma can be challenged so that somebody can stand up to criticize and help squash bad dogma. We see that. The second one is moral relativism, and we use this term a lot. Moral relativism is the view that moral judgments are true or false only relative to some particular standpoint. In other words, there really isn't good and there really isn't evil and everything is relative. And that no standpoint, in other words, whether it's good or whether it's bad depends on who you're talking to and that no standpoint is uniquely privileged over all others. Now, this sounds confusing because most of us go like, no, 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 we get it. Shooting somebody who's just walking down the street is bad. And while moral relativism would argue like, I guess it depends on who you ask. The, the reality is the reason they're bringing moral relativism up is that every system treasures its dogma above any other system or the critics of that dogma. 
And the reason that's important is because we often in religious systems and non-religious systems, Nazi Germany, for instance, we often get to a point where we take the high ground inside our system. And I don't mean high ground as in choosing the right. I mean, high ground as in like king of the hill. I'm the better. I know I'm right. They're wrong. I know I'm right. Therefore, I should be able to impose my dogma on them, even if it harms them, because it's actually for their good. Do you see? When you do that, you are actually imposing moral relativism. And And they're noting this because there has to be a way in which insiders and outsiders of systems can sit and have a conversation about what really is the high ground, what really is right and wrong, and what can be imposed on others, even if it harms them. And so we, we never can see that inside our religious system. But if we're looking outside our religious system, if we see you know, Scientologists and their leadership following their critical members and sorting through their trash and stealing their, their legal documents and then following them in a car. We look at that and go like, that's cray cray. And I'm 100% against that. And we look at Auschwitz, Germany, and we look at how like these guys justify doing the harm they did. And we go like, that's cray cray. I can't believe it got to that point. But if we stand in front of a mirror and look at ourselves inside our own system, we have such deep struggle to see the same thing playing out in that mirror. And we need to understand those two points as we move forward. Back to these guys. No, it's not. So just to close the loop on that, the only reason why I would focus on religion in particular there is that religion is the only language game wherein fundamentalism and, and dogmatism, dogmatism is not a pejorative concept. Dogma is a good word, in, specifically within Catholicism. And the notion that you must believe things on faith, that is in the absence of compelling evidence that would otherwise cause a rational person to believe it, that in a religious context is considered a feature, not a bug. Elsewhere, we recognize it to be a bug. And that's, that's why the, the... While non-religious dogma and religious dogma both cause great harm, he's noting a difference here. And the difference is that within religions, pick anyone you want, don't pick yours. We recognize like, oh, that religion justifies the damage and harm they do. So hopefully if you're a listener and you're Catholic, you can kind of toss this out. But as I'm looking at the audience and I'm going to point back to Catholicism for a moment, a thousand years ago, if you were to be a heretic in the Catholic church, which is simply to say like, oh, I don't like that we do this one thing, right? What would Catholicism do? It would, it would judge you guilty of heresy and it would burn you at the stake or cut off your head. We grasp that that, as an outsider, we grasp that that is wrong. But religion 
sees dogma as a good thing. Religion tells itself it doesn't matter if our beliefs makes logical sense or not. It doesn't matter if the ground we hold has evidence or not. Those are our beliefs. God has given them to us, and hence we are free to carry out the extension of that dogma, even if it deeply hurts others, because we know it is true. Now, we see that as an outsider. We look at the harm that various religions have done, and we see them as atrocious. But again, if we look in a mirror, we excuse the harm that our religious system does because we know that our dogma is true and their dogma is not. You need to focus on religion. Okay, so, so, so it, all right, so is it reasonable to assume that the associate, we've already established at least in principle that there's an association between the totalitarian regimes, let's say, and, dog, and dogmatism, yeah. And the dogmatism that characterizes religious belief. Yeah. What do you think, although at least in principle, the, the secularist totalitarian states and the religious fundamentalist totalitarian states do differ in one important regard, which is that the religious types ground their axioms in God and the secular totalitarian types don't. And so th- there's got to be something about totalitarianism per se that's independent of that's associated with religious belief in the manner that you just described, but that's not particularly associated with the belief in God. There's something that makes them, that's a commonality between them. And so, do you have any sense of what that might be? It's only important to note here why he's asking the question. Jordan Peterson is saying, look, egregious harm is is caused, inflicted, imposed by collective systems, both under religious dogma and under dogma that's not religious, under dogma that's connected to God and dogma that's not connected to God. And if we can parse out the whys of violence in dogma that's not religious and connected to God, then maybe we can disconnect God from all of these egregious harms that are done. In other words, Can we make space that God's not the problem, that people believing in God's not the problem, that people having beliefs under a God is not the problem, but that there's some other commonality that if we can learn what that is, we can remove that from our religions and still have religion in God and stop doing collective harm because of dogma. Well, I, I would, I, I think uh, one has to acknowledge that there's something uniquely pernicious, at least potentially, about religious beliefs because they, they have the, the otherworldly variable, the supernatural variable, the uh, you're going to get everything you want after you die, so this life doesn't matter issue. That, right. that, that allows for a kind of misbehavior that is especially okay. okay so so it seems that so that the claim would be that if you if you put forward axiomatically your claim that god exists then you can use that claim to justify whatever arbitrary atrocities your system might throw off yeah i, I guess okay. the only point i was making there is that not all dogmas are created equal some dogmas are on their face 
more dangerous and more divisive. You know, right, you, but, if, but what I'm curious about specifically is, because it seems to me that the dogmas of the USSR and the dogmas of Nazi Germany were as pernicious as any religious dog, dogmas, and, and they may also share important features with yeah. pernicious religious oh, dogmas, yeah. but it isn't yeah. clear to me from your perspective what those commonalities would be. Well, so... I mean, in some ways, you're recapitulating an argument I've made, and this is an argument that I would make against you were you to claim, as you've ha you have elsewhere, that, that atheism is responsible for the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. The idea that Stalinism and Nazism and fascism were expressions of atheism simply doesn't make any sense. I mean, in the case of fascism and, and Nazism, it doesn't make any sense because the, the fascists and the Nazis, by and large, were not even atheists. I mean, Hitler wasn't an atheist, and he was talking about executing a divine plan, and he got lots of support from the churches, and the Vatican did nothing to stop him, and fascism, as you know, uh, coexisted quite happily with uh, Catholicism in Croatia and Portugal and Spain and Italy. So, but even in the case of Stalin, what was so wrong with that situation was were all of the ways in which it so resembled a religion. You had a personality cult, you had dogmatism, uh, that uh, held sway to a point where apostasy and blasphemy were killing offenses. You know, the, the people who, who, who didn't toe the line were eradicated. And, you know, so, and North, so to, to take a more modern example, North Korea is a religious cult. It just doesn't happen to be a, a one that is focused on the next life or... or you know, supernatural claims of, so what of would magic. Be the okay, so what would be the defining characteristics of a religious totalitarian movement that would make it different from a non-religious totalitarian movement? Well, I mean, just, because they, there's aspects they, that are they, similar. They, yeah, they may, yeah, they're very similar. I mean, the, the problem is dogmatism. The overarching problem is believing things strongly on bad evidence. And, be, be, and the reason why dogmatism is so dangerous is that it is... It doesn't allow us to revise our bad ideas in real time through conversation. It is it, dogmas have to be enforced by force or the threat of force. Because the moment someone has a better idea, you have to shut it down in order to preserve your dogmas. Okay. So, so he's saying here the problem, and we've been pointing this out, but we're, this is important, and I hope people are enjoying this conversation because I think this conversation is crucial. This is. This is the foundation of the debate between insiders, outsiders, and those on the margins of a religious system having any conversation about that system's truth claims and the unhealthiness inside that system. The problem that Sam Harris points out is dogmatism, whether it's a religious regime or system or a non-religious regime or system. It's that there are authorities who can put across ideas and beliefs, impose those beliefs and ideas as absolutes, and then there's no room in the system for a healthy conversation criticizing those beliefs and the insiders of those beliefs also believe it so deeply that they too help the authorities squash any kind of conversation or criticism about those beliefs. Okay, so, so the commonality seems to be something like claims of absolute truth at some level that can't be, that you're no longer yeah. allowed to discuss. 
Yeah. Okay. And so, okay. So that's another point of agreement then, I would say, because part of the reason that I've been, let's say, a free speech advocate, although I don't think that's the right way of thinking about it, is because I think of free discourse, like the discourse that we're engaged in, as the mechanism that corrects totalitarian excess or dogmatic excess. Mm. And so I also think that systems of governance that are laying themselves out properly have to evaluate have to elevate the process by which dogmatic errors are corrected over the dogmas themselves, which is why I think the Americans are right, say, with regard to their First Amendment, is the process of free speech is the process by which dogmatic errors are rectified, and so it has to be put at the pinnacle of the hierarchy of values, yeah, something yeah. like I, that. No, I think you and I totally agree about the primacy of free speech. Okay, okay, yeah. good. Okay, so that's another. Fine. The crowd is applauding here because you have these two men who seem in such disagreement. And here is this extreme point of agreement. And the, the point is crucial, which is in order to have a healthy system, you have to have a system that has set itself up in a way as to be vulnerable to criticism. It has to have mechanisms by which its members of the system can give constructive criticism. And if that constructive criticism is true, is real, is uh, healthy change, is suggesting a better way, the system has a way to be humble and its authorities say, like, yeah, you're right, we're wrong, let's change that. And the system has to allow this conversation out in the open. Because what makes a healthy system healthy is its authorities can be seen as acknowledging their limitations and acknowledging that they don't always get it right and that their wrongs often hurt people, and that they too want to work with all within the system to make this the best system possible. Every system that's healthy does this, and every system that does not do this is not healthy. And here are these two men at deeply opposing viewpoints, both saying, correct, that's true. Okay, so, so then wait, we could I think there's, there's one point that we should just uh, mm -hmm. lock in our gains here. It sounds like what you're saying is that the reason to fear religious dogma is really on the dogma side and not the religion side, which at least leaves open the possibility that something could exist over on the religion side that doesn't have that characteristic, right? That often they travel in tandem, but that the thing to fear is not the religious belief, it is the dogmatic nature of the way it is conveyed. Oh, yeah. Is well, that fair? The, the, the other way to say that is the only thing that's wrong with religion is the dogmatism. If you, if you get rid of the dog, I've got no problem with the buildings and the music and the, and the paintings and, you know. Wait, wait, no, that, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not a trivial, that's not a trivial point, and it's not just a joke, because the buildings and the music are very important parts of the religious process. And yeah. so I know, I know there's a humorous element to that, but it's and, not but, like Sam is throwing out the baby with the bathwater there. And, and, but, and, and, so, to, and to go further than that, I, I've got no problem. In fact, I'm deeply interested in the phenomenology of spiritual experience. So, so whatever experience someone like Jesus had, whoever he was historically, or any of the other uh, 
matriarchs and patriarchs of, of the world's religions, though th- that phenomenology is is subjectively real. I mean, it's diverse. I'm not saying everyone's had the same experience, but there are changes in consciousness that explain both how religions have gotten founded by their their founders and the experiences people have had in the presence of those people or by following their methodologies that seem to be confirming of the dogmas that got that grew up around those traditions and my my issue is that whatever is true about us spiritually whatever opportunity being born into this universe actually presents as a matter of, of consciousness uh, spiritually. That truth has to be deeper than accidents of culture and just mere historical contingencies. The fact that somebody was born in, in Mesopotamia and not in China and got a different language game. Uh, so whatever is true there has to be understood in universal terms about the nature of human psychology and, and the human mind. So the crux of their debate is whether dogma is the only problem. In other words, if we can get rid of unquestionable uh, ideas imposed by authorities as absolutes without any healthy way to criticize and rectify uh, unhealthy dogmas, then is religion okay? And, And I don't want to go off in that space. So I'm just going to acknowledge it, but then I want to set that off to the side because I think that debate's been going on for 2,000 years, and I don't think that we would have any hope of resolving that here. What I want to stay focused on is what they agree on, which is that dogma, unquestioned dogma, a, a system that does not have a way to tear down and Uh, bad dogma and rebuild something healthier is on uh, like every rational, logical person who looks at that from an, as an outsider to other systems, 100% agrees. And I think we need to grasp that. Hear that again. Everybody, everyone agrees when they look at other systems that they are outside of. We all agree that dogmas that cannot be criticized and deconstructed and reconstructed in healthy ways inside the system is unhealthy and is not good. It is bad. It is dangerous and it causes harm. We all agree. The trouble becomes when we're inside the system and we now justify that our system gets to play by a different set of rules because our system is true. Our system is right. They conclude this segment of the conversation um, by making uh, Sam Harris goes off on a tangent saying, look, we need to separate religion and spirituality. He absolutely agrees that people are having spiritual ex- uh, uh, experiences And those spiritual experiences lead people to align themselves with various religious systems. And those spiritual experiences often cause an individual to create a new religious system and then to gain followers of that religious system. Sam Harris is saying the religious experience is real. People are having a spiritual experience. It's some alteration in their consciousness. 
The trouble comes in when we interpret those religious spirit experiences to mean that our particular religious system is the one and only. Because we, again, only see it as an insider. And when we step outside, we sense like, oh, Muhammad had a religious experience and it led him to start Islam. And everybody else who has a religious experience inside Islam aligns themselves with believing Islam is the one and only true church. L. Ron Hubbard does something where he creates Scientology and all future Scientologists have some sort of consciousness experience, some sort of spiritual experience within their consciousness that aligns them with saying, look, I've tried other things, but Scientology is the one and only true thing. And whatever religion you pick, people are loyal to their religious system because of the spiritual benefits they've received inside that system. But what Sam is saying is that all humans are susceptible to having spiritual experiences and then align themselves with a specific religious system. When the reality is, as an outsider, you say like, oh, they're just having spiritual experiences and it has nothing to do with the religious system. If it did, the adherence of particular religious systems would be alone in having that magnitude of spiritual experience, but that's not what we find. Okay, so, so another thing that, that I wanted to just point out obliquely, and then I want to return to outlining maybe where we agree, is that one of the things that was really shocking to me, I would say, was the, the, my reading of what was originally Jane Goodall's discovery about chimp behavior, you know, because there was this idea that was really rooted in Rousseauian thinking that the reason that people committed atrocities in the service of their group identity, let's say their tribal identity, was because culture had corrupted us. So it was a uniquely human thing. But then, of course, Goodall showed in the 1970s that the chimps at Gombe, I think that's, I'm pronouncing that correctly, yep. would go on raiding parties, right? And, and so there'd be like four or five adolescent chimps, usually male, sometimes with a female in there. They would patrol the borders of their territory. If they found an interloper on the border, near the border, from another troop, even if it was a member of their troop that had emigrated, so to speak, and that they, mm. they, that they had had some history with, they would tear them to pieces. And of course, that was shocking to Goodall, but, and, and I, I, my understanding is she had some trepidations about publishing it, although she did. But then that's been noted repeatedly in other forms of chimp behavior. So, see, I've been really interested in the commission of atrocity in the service of belief. And it's tempting to pin that, say, on... on dogma and then to associate that with religious dogma, I think that's all tempting. But the fact that chimps do it shows that it can't be a consequence of something like religious belief, unless you're willing to say that the reason that chimps commit atrocity in the service of their troop and their territory is because chimps are religious. And so they're not religious and they don't really hold a secular totalitarian viewpoint, but they act out, they still act out the the atrocity element that's characteristic of human behavior. And so to me, that makes the problem deeper than one of mere, let's say, surface statements, surface statements about yeah, yeah. metaphysics. I had a separate idea in this space. And I, I, again, be patient with me as I try to articulate this. 
inside a religious system, and let's let's use Christianity generally. Let's not get into uh, the particulars. And I think this applies to lots of other religions too. I think Judaism and Islam, for instance, also play very big on this kind of idea. Human beings are in a spiritual battle on this earth. And some human beings are doing the work of God. And other human beings are doing the work of some adversarial force. And in Christianity, we call that Satan or Lucifer. And as an insider to any particular religious system, we set the world up in this way, that there are people doing God's work, and that's us, and there are people not doing God's work, and that's them. And when we see violence committed, we either A, if it's outside of our tribe or being inflicted upon our tribe, we justify it in our minds by saying that the adversarial force has a hold on those that are not us. And so them is hurting us and they're under some evil influence. If the violence is us doing it to them, then we justify that we are carrying out the justice of God and hence we inflict harm on others outside of our tribe. Like there's us and there's them and God has given us permission to hurt them. And what we don't hear, we, we can't hear it as an insider, is, is that the idea that this, has, that, that this entire paradigm is, excuse my language, bullshit. That the reality is that it's evolutionary. That us versus them is not a human endeavor even because the monkeys are doing it and the monkeys have no concept of God and the monkeys uh, don't have uh, this kind of dogma. What the monkeys are doing is they're simply being animals and millions and millions and millions of years of evolution have said that for us to survive, for us to keep making it, for our DNA to continue, these acts have to be carried out. And what I'm suggesting is that as an insider in a religious system, we cannot see that play out in our system that way. We will not make space for that. And I'm saying it's much healthier if we can look at these things as an outsider to our system And sense, like, no, maybe God's not the one who's behind all these things going on. And instead, this is the way our our tribe protects itself and prevents itself from its DNA dying off. Like, maybe we're simply carrying out the act of evolutionary self-preservation, the evolutionary mechanism of self-preservation and we're labeling it with religious concepts in order to justify it and get us to all band together to carry it out when the reality is it is just a evolutionary mechanism of self-preservation with religious dogma bullshit attached to it in order to get us to all get in line 
and do it. Because when you attach the religious dogma to a mechanism, you justify to all the insiders that there's no need to have a system of critical feedback, of constructive criticism, and a way for the tribe and its authorities to be vulnerable to hashing out whether its mechanisms are actually healthy or not, because God has justified them, therefore they are unquestionable. And I want you to understand that as we move through this conversation. The, the, obviously, the problem of primate aggression, which we've inherited along with the chimps, is deeper or at least different than the problem of religious violence or, or totalitarian uh, okay. p- political structures that, that okay, get good. the worst out of people. So, uh, I mean, we have, we have these primate capacities that we have to correct for, and we're busily trying to correct for almost everything that we've been evolved to do. I mean, we're not, we, you know, we don't like the state of nature for good reason, and virtually everything that's good about human life is born of our... I would argue culture-based and, and you know, highly intelligent and necessary effort to, to mitigate what is in fact natural for us. And natu- I mean, tri- there's nothing more natural than tribal violence, which of the sort okay. that you're, okay. you're okay. describing okay. in chimps. Okay, so, so then that it also seems like we agree that the, the core element of tribal alliance, which would have its roots, say, in, in the chimpanzee proclivity to, or its analog in the chimpanzee proclivity to identify with the dominance hierarchy of the troop, Mm. is something that's a source of the proclivity for human social aggression that's independent of its, at at least independent of any obvious religious substrate. So there are other reasons for group belief and the commission of atrocity that can't be directly attributed to to religious dogma. Yeah, and what most worries me about religion, I would say, obviously religion can channel these primate urges in unhappy ways. So you, you can get tribal violence that gets amplified by religious dogmatism, and that should trouble everyone. But it's not unique to religion. It's also nationalism, and it's racism, and it's all other kinds of dogmatism. But what most worries me are those cases where clearly good people who are not necessarily captured by tribalism, per se, uh, are doing the unthinkable based purely on religious doctrines that they believe wholeheartedly with, without good evidence. So you have the person who joins ISIS who, who wasn't even Muslim before they converted you know, 16 months ago, and they go all the way down the rabbit hole to the, the most doctrinaire, most committed, most uncompromising view of just how you have to live in this world if you're going to be Muslim. Uh, and they join ISIS based on the idea that salvation only goes one way and that dying in defense of the one true faith is the the best thing that can happen to you. There's no question that there are individuals who have made that journey. In fact, there are individuals by the thousands who have made that journey. And there are far more benign versions of that. There are people who just waste their lives, I would argue, converting to whatever the belief system is and just wasting a lot of time worrying about hell or worrying about the fact that they're child is gay and the, the, you know, the creator of the universe doesn't approve of that. Uh, and all, there are all, all kinds of suffering that strike me as truly unnecessary, born not of, again, ape-like urges, but ideas that any rational person would, if believed, would, fo- would follow to the, that same terminus. I mean, the, the, the thing is, if you buy 
if you buy the fact, again, to take Islam as, as a current example, if you buy the claim that the Quran is the perfect word of the creator of the universe, never to be superseded by anything humanity does now or a thousand years from now, that commits a rational person, then, then the exercise of human reason is bounded by this, I would argue, pathological frame, which leads to certain outcomes that okay. should really worry us. Sam Harris here is making the acknowledgement that evolutionary tribalism does a, a great deal of harm on its own. And again, pointing back to the monkeys to show that that's the case and that we humans over millions of years have done plenty of harm out of tribalism alone. And, and then he again makes the important connection that when our dogma is unquestionable because we believe it comes straight from the divine creator and our dogma can present itself in uh, a sacred text that we interpret a certain way. Uh, that dogma can show itself in leadership of a religious system who claims to be the mouthpieces of God that uh, that harm can show up in interpretations. In other words, it can be a mesh. It can be, here's our sacred text, and here's the authorities of our tribe telling us how to interpret that sacred text. And now you can have a mesh. And what this religious construct adds to is it's an extra layer of guilt and shame and punishment for anybody who even thinks to question or criticize that dogma. And if, if anybody inside the tribe is seen as bad for criticizing or questioning the dogma, and there is punishments in the tribe for that, then the unhealthy dogma that does harm to people is allowed to extend itself over a much larger period of time. And it cuts itself off to insider criticism. And you now have taken an unhealthy system and made it exponentially more unhealthy. So, so let's take that claim apart for a minute, because that's not your claim specifically, the, the claim that you were describing. See, because that's, that's really not the claim that religious fundamentalists make. The claim they make is worse than that because they claim that the Quran, say, or, or the Bible mm. for that matter, is the literal word of God. But more than that, they claim that their understanding of that word is correct, which yeah. means they conflate two things. Like, because you could imagine a situation where you had a book, and I'm not saying this is the case, it's, it's an imaginative exercise, where you had a book that had all the answers that was extraordinarily complicated. And so that when you read it, it wouldn't be obvious that you understood it, or perhaps it wouldn't be mm -hmm. obvious that you didn't understand it either, but you're not going to be able to, you can't get an uninterpreted version of the book. And so the fundamentalist claim is far worse. It's that not only is there an absolute reality, truth embedded in the book, yeah. but that their particular take on that absolute reality is the absolute take on that book. Yeah. And so they conflate their own they, they, they make an assumption of their own omniscience and then pass that off 
onto God, so yeah, to speak. Except, and, and so here, Jordan Peterson is drawing the same connection I just said, which is there's this meshing. And so it's one thing for a religious community to say, here's our sacred text. Now you are free to discuss it and find meaning in it in various ways. And it's okay if various people think about these scriptures differently. That has a level of healthiness to it. Jordan Peterson is acknowledging that what is fundamentalism in religious, uh, in a religious paradigm? Fundamentalism is where there's not only a sacred text, but there are authorities in the tribe who say this is the only way to understand this text, and anybody who understands it differently, anybody who interprets our dogma differently than we do, is a heretic and needs to be punished, shamed, marginalized, or distanced in some way. And so then the tribe is essentially blindly obedient, being uh, led blindly to hold a specific ground because that ground is what the authorities say is the only viable ground we are allowed to hold. So you compound the unhealthiness when you go above and beyond simply having a sacred text that people are allowed to derive meaning from, but when you tell them the very meaning which they are to derive from it. In their defense, and I don't often rise to the defense of fundamentalists, <laughs> uh, it's, it's very easy to get there because some of the, the claims in the book are not at all hard to parse. In fact, so many of them can only be honestly interpreted one way. So to take, again, an example that will be not inflammatory uh, to you, but uh, makes the point, it just says that the, the remedy for theft in the Quran is to cut the, the hands off a thief. I mean, you, 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 that, that is the unambiguous injunction. It's not an allegory. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's a, so, so the... You have to you have to indulge right. some kind of tortured uh, interpretive scheme to avoid the, the the shocking fact that the creator of the universe thinks you should live this way for for all time. And people like ISIS. I mean, th- I mean, this is my claim. It's just it, th- this. Is, most of what is in these books, and this is what worries me about those books because they, they can't be edited. Uh, most of what's in the books is clearly not the best that humanity is capable of in the ethical domain or in the no. so and and so and so clearly and this is true for morality you know most pressingly but it's true for science it's true for economics it's true for anything else that we we uh, are wise to pay attention to uh, it's like Slavery is condoned in the Bible, in both Testaments, and in the Quran. There's no getting away from that. Now, you can say, well, it's not the central thrust of any of these books, but if you, if you go to the books and try to figure out what the creator of the universe wants with respect to the owning and needless immiseration of other people, right? he expects you to keep slaves, and he's told you how to do it. You know, don't knock out their eyes and their teeth. Uh, uh, don't take if you're a Muslim. Don't take other Muslims as slaves. But it's not an accident that 
the people who joined ISIS thought that it was absolutely kosher to take slaves, to take sex slaves. And uh, I mean, they were even, their, their use of their sex slaves was conducted as a sacrament. And that's not an accident. I mean, they, they were okay. praying over their, the, the, the Yazidi girls before they raped them. So this, this is not, unlike the, what many people expect, it's not that this doctrine is being used as a pretext for people who would otherwise do terrible things like take sex slaves and rape them. Uh, and so there's no net damage being done here by this belief system. No, these are... I would argue, in many cases, psychologically normal people who are simply convinced of the absolute veracity of these ideas. And, and in, the, in this case, the, the perfect example of Muhammad as the, the, the most self-actualized human who's ever existed. And, you know, what did Muhammad do? Muhammad took sex slaves. Uh, so, you know, he, and, he's a, and then, then once, you, once you grant that, and this is, I mean, this is where you, there's, a, there's a tension between, you know, how we pursue the same goals, like, you know, as we've just established, we have many of the same goals, but insofar as you make religion look palatable, insofar as you suggest to your audience that they can, they can have their religious cake and eat it too, they can, they can have their reason, they can have their respect for science, they can have a 21st century worldview, but they can also hold on to everything they love in Christianity or fear to lose. And it's, it's undoubtedly mostly Christianity, but but whatever, any religion. My concern is that it keeps us shackled to these Iron Age philosophies and these Iron Age conversations where we should be having a 21st century conversation about everything, ethics included. Okay, okay, so... Sam Harris here is pointing at a twofold problem. One is that the text itself gives us permission to hurt other people. And and we just have to acknowledge this. Like, as Christians, if we just take Christianity generally, again, look at it from an outsider. Step outside for a moment. Can you see that the Old Testament calls us to treat others in ways that we no longer see as the right way. And as Christians, what we've done is we've nuanced it. We've said like, no, God in the Old Testament had to be harsher, and here's the way he treats people. But then Jesus comes along, and Jesus reforms the old law. He is the new law, and most of this harm is done away. And the things that we still need to be able to justify— Jesus has acknowledged that that's what we need to do. And so, yes, we probably are still causing some harm, but it's not unnecessary harm. It's necessary harm because Jesus fulfilled the law and Jesus himself condones it. And who are we? Who are we to question Jesus? You see? Do you see how dogma plays out? Do you see how dogma gives the insider permission to continue hurting like the Christian goes like, no, we don't cut off the hands of thieves anymore. Like, yes, God of the Old Testament did that and that was needed then. But then Jesus came and Jesus said, stop doing that. But then the things Jesus doesn't address, like how do we treat gay people? 
oh, Jesus never changed that law, so it must still be necessary to inflict that harm. That's how dogma plays out. And as an insider, you're always justifying the harm that your religious system does from the inside. So two things happen. One is that the text itself is still unhealthy. You would look as an outsider on any other religious system. You would see the harm being done in its religious system. That's not the harm your religious system does. And you would condemn it. But when it's the harm your religious system does on the inside, you condone it. And it's only your insider-outsider dynamic and your loyalty and adherence to your religious dogma that gives you the space to justify it. And what Sam Harris is telling Jordan Peterson is that you can nuance it. And this happens in every religious system. Christianity has its apologist. Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, they have their apologist. Islam has its apologist. Judaism has its apologist. And by apologist, I mean the defenders of the faith. And what all of these people do is they take where there's these tensions and they nuance them a little bit and make them palatable. Make them uh, a little easier to swallow. And the trouble is when we nuance such things, we never get to where the rubber really meets the road, where all of us sit in a room as insiders and outsiders and have the very conversation that Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson are having, where you say like, look, let's just be blunt. It doesn't matter if your current authorities acknowledge that this is unhealthy, or even if they condone it, it still isn't healthy. It still hurts people, not necessarily, but unnecessarily. And you see these religious systems, they are not comfortable making any vulnerable space where we can all get together and say like, you're doing this harm You're justifying it this way, and that's unacceptable, and you need to be accountable to that. Because then the religious authorities risk losing the loyalty and obedience of the adherents. So it's all a game being played behind the scenes intentionally, but as an insider, you can't see that. As an insider, you don't see the game being played You only see your authorities doing the work of God and standing up to the world and the world is wicked and fallen and you're right and they're wrong and it's us and they're them. And all of these tribal evolutionary mechanics are playing out. These mechanisms are playing out. And with this religious blanket of permission covering it all up. And so to nuance it is not sufficient enough. And I used to be one of those guys who would nuance it. And I'm suggesting that nuancing it uh, makes all of us insiders feel better, but it also provides a cushion between the authorities of that tribe 
and they're being accountable to the unnecessary harm that they do. Okay, so, so um, but I, I want to ask you a little bit about your feeling wait, about... Wait, before, before you move on, I, I, I want to get each of you to clarify something so yep. that we know yep. where, where yep. we are. <laughs> so Sam, you said the problem here is that the dogma can't be updated right, that slavery is with us permanently because it's written into the dogma. But clearly, most of the traditions in which it's written into the holy book don't practice slavery, and the people who, uh, who adhere to these belief systems wouldn't defend slavery. So clearly there is the capacity for an update mechanism. Well, no, but n not really. I mean, they've been forced, they've had it beaten out of them, right? I mean, that we, we fought a civil war in the U.S. to get rid of slavery. But it was just, we, Christians who abolished slavery in England, though. What was that? It was Christians who were at the forefront of the movement to abolish well, yeah, slavery I mean, in England. Th there were Christians on either side of everything. I mean, there's, there's no one else to no, do the job. Right, well, but, but that's well, yeah, the update. But, but wait, wait a second. Yeah. But, so, so yes, there, there, but it was specifically Christians who were using their Christian belief as a justification for yes, eradicating but slavery. The, the problem was they were actually on the losing side of a theological argument. And, and it would be much better, I think you would agree, if one of the Ten Commandments had been, don't keep slaves. You know? Hmm. You know? I mean, we, there, there's certainly one we could swap out for that one. Hmm. And, and so that way, it would have been much easier for Christians to have fought against slavery. And it's, it's much harder for Muslims, frankly, to, to fight against it now. Uh, the problem is, is that, this is a, a point I made, I think, in my first book, is that the, the, the doors leading out of this kind of fundamentalism don't open from the inside. They get bashed open from the outside. And it's, it's, it's humanism and it's secularism and it's scientific rationality that has exerted such pressure, such winnowing pressure on Christianity, you know, the, now for multiple centuries, that that's why we're not encountering the Christians of the 14th century on a daily basis. I mean, we, and we are essentially encountering Muslims of the 14th century not only in the Middle East, but in our own societies, in, in, in terms of their intuitions about how we should all live, right? I mean, the fact that 0% of UK Muslims think homosexuality is acceptable, right? 0%, I mean, you, there's almost no question you can come up with where we could poll this, this, this society and say, you know, I mean, do you think that, that the, you know, a lizard king is, is living in the Oval Office, you know, that... Uh, <laughs> You, you, you never get a 0% response to any poll question, right? Uh, but if you ask Muslims on the streets of London, is homosexuality morally acceptable? Apparently, you can find no one who says it is. Uh, that's shocking, and it's not an accident, right? And it would be much easier if the book actually said, actually, you, know, you can love anyone you want. And you know. Again, this is a crucial point. Sam Harris is making the argument that religious dogma never changes. Authorities of religious systems impose unhealthy, harmful dogma until there is a loud enough voice, enough resistance from the bottom up or from the outside in that it crashes in the doors and makes those religious authorities sense that, oh, we wanted to get away with imposing that, but they're not going to let us anymore. 
And as an insider, again, you don't see this. When you're an insider, you sense that your religious authorities are in touch with God and they're having conversations with him. And when God is okay with us doing something differently, like yesterday, God wanted us to do it that way. And then today, God told us to do it differently. And as an insider, that's the way you're framing it, but that's not the way it really happens. When you step outside your religious system and you look at other religious systems, and again, if you're not a Catholic, let's look at Catholicism. Look at Catholicism and you say, there was a time it punished heresy with death, with execution. It did not revise that because God spoke up and told them to quit. They revised it because the pressure from the bottom up or the outside in became so significant that they could no longer get away with chopping off the heads of heretics. Now, take a look in the mirror at your religious system. And set aside for a moment your need for your authorities to be in communication with God. Can you honor as an outsider looking in at your religious system of which you're an insider? Can you acknowledge that every healthy change your religious system has made has been because there has been pressure from the bottom up and the outside in to crash in the doors and say that this isn't healthy and it will no longer be tolerated. And if you can sense that, if you can begin to sense that inside your religious system, you can begin to see your system as an outsider. And the moment you allow yourself to see your system as an outsider, you will be exposed deeply to the unhealthiness inside of it. And you will begin to sense that your authorities will always resist doing the right thing so long as the right thing hurts the members of that religious system's loyalty, obedience, adherence to that tribal system, and so long as those authorities receive accolades and uh, validation from the members of that tribe. And the moment that the noise gets too loud, and we'll use some examples at the end, uh, the moment that noise gets too loud, there's too much risk, there's too much pushback, then your religious system will begin to shift and change on those points. And once you see it, you have to come face to face that this is not about God reaching down and talking to your authorities. This is about those on the margins and on the outside saying enough is enough. It's, uh, it's not a problem. It is, it is shocking, but I think, you know, there's a reason that you keep finding yourself at, at Islam, which may be the slowest to update for reasons that may be ancient. But hmm. I, I want to... Well, that, that's, that's a, that is a useful... Uh, uh, well, I, I, I can do it for Christianity. I just, I, I want to make the point as cleanly and as undistractedly as possible. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's true. I have the same kinds of concerns about Christianity or Mormonism or Scientology or anything else. 
and they're all the point is they're all different and there's no reason to be because you know Islam to take the case where it's fine Islam doesn't represent any impediment to stem cell research right because they just don't think that that the, 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 the fertilized ovum is immediately ensold. They wait, it waits 40 days or 80 days or 120 days, depending on, on what hadith you believe. So it's just that never came up when we were all complaining about how religion, in this case, Orthodox Judaism and Christianity in, in, in the States, was posing an impediment to embryonic stem cell research. Okay. 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 I simply want to say here, I want you to recognize what Sam Harris did, which is that he used a system outside of your system so that you could see definitively what he's talking about. But again, he brings it back and says, but whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's happening inside your system too. And it's only because you're an insider that you can't see it. And so the only way I can make a space where you and I can have this conversation is if I don't talk about your system. But please trust me, this plays out in your system just as much. My point is, is that it, it isn't reasonable to take a single sentence out of a coherent narrative and say that stands on its own. Now I left out a little section here. So go back and listen. But what, so I'm picking up, you're missing a little piece. And then I have Jordan Peterson saying, it's almost never reasonable to take a single sentence on its own. But if you, again, as an outsider, you can see how Muslim extremists do unnecessary harm by taking a particular verse of scripture and then basing an entire dogma around it and saying, this is the mind and will of God, and here we are. And you can easily, as an outsider, look at that and go like, ooh, that's unhealthy. Let's not do that. But when you look in the mirror at your own religious system, it's the very thing your religious authorities are doing presently and have done since the creation of your religious system. And again, it's all about loyalty, adherence, obedience, and it's what works and what doesn't work. And until the resistance from the bottom up or the outside in is significant enough, they will continue to do unnecessary harm by singling out particular verses and, and paragraphs or chapters that reinforce the dogma of that tribe. So we need to just understand that. That's the final audio in terms of Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris. I simply want to go back now and have a quick conversation. We've talked at length about dogma, that dogma within systems that are unhealthy, that dogma is unquestionable. It is also punishable and shameable. If you question the dogma, you are punished. If you question the dogma, you are shamed. You become less than us. You're somehow not exactly us, and at some point you will become them. Also notice there's a lower strength of argument. In other words, we cannot be vulnerable to constructive criticism about our system because our system isn't based on evidence. You see, if the system really did have the higher ground, it would welcome criticism. Nazi Germany, the Nazi regime, could not allow constructive criticism 
because it held the weaker argument. And you as an outsider can see that in other systems that don't welcome constructive criticism. Can you acknowledge that your system, if it doesn't welcome constructive criticism, is just as unhealthy? When you normalize believing things for which there is no sufficient evidence, you create an unhealthy space for people to impose harm on others based on invisible things, based on things that have no evidence. And as an insider, you justify that. As an outsider, you see that it is atrocious. Can you begin to take on an outsider perspective? Um, Systems where the authorities, they're the experts. They're the only voices who are allowed to declare and interpret dogma. Notice how unhealthy that is. They cannot be challenged. These experts, we can show that they demonstrably fail at discerning the mind and will of God. We can look at any system, including our own, And we can see the authorities get it wrong over and over and over again, but we still put them on a pedestal and say, they're the only experts we're allowed to have. They're the authorities. Nobody's allowed to challenge them. Look, they're fallible. They make some mistakes, but we can't talk about those mistakes. We can't challenge them on these issues. That's unhealthy. When challenges uh, happen, Do we recognize that the challengers are excised or distanced from the tribe in spite of the evidence that the experts, the authorities get it wrong over and over again, that they appear to be winging it or simply doing the job of humans do in terms of working out questions and ideas, distancing themselves from constructive criticism and trying to be practical in in, in places where they can, but essentially they're just winging it. Can we step back as an outsider and sense like, oh yeah, the reality is as an outsider, I can see that it doesn't look like God's really working there, but instead they are pushing against constructive criticism until the pressure becomes too great from the bottom up or the outside in. Notice that any conversation coming not from the authorities, not from the experts, is distanced. It's not official. It's not okay. When somebody tries to be a theologian inside our system, that's not okay. They have to soften their rhetoric. They have to preface their rhetoric that they don't speak with authority. Do we notice that? Again, if we look at other systems, do we sense the unhealthiness of even those who try to be on the inside criticizing the system that they are softening their rhetoric and cushioning their rhetoric so as to not uh, put into play the mechanisms of punishment and shaming. Notice it becomes obvious that we collectively would come to better approaches if we set that dogma aside as unchallengeable and based our approaches on evidence and the value of constructive feedback. Can we sense that? That unhealthy dogma is allowed to persist much further and longer than it normally would 
because our systems say said dogma is unchallengeable. Now, having said all that, let me begin to work towards wrapping up. What I want to do now is reach in and use a few specific examples to demonstrate the point and then close out this episode. So if we, as we always do in the Cognitive Dissonance podcast, or at least generally, we use Mormonism as the faith system that we go into and look at the specifics of. And so if we go into Mormonism and we go back and let's look at the 1978 revelation on race. Again, what is the church, what is this particular faith system, what does it want to do? It wants to convey that it is the kingdom of God on earth. Its dogma is the one and only true dogma. It wants to convey that God speaks to its leaders. Its leaders, uh, when you look at that time period and go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you'll see that as conversations are happening around race, its leadership is squashing those voices. Uh, Dr. Lowry Nelson, um, there's the uh, Udall politician, uh, there are others. And as they begin to uh, raise or escalate their voices, the leadership in the church at all levels, but because of the top level and from the top down, say, hey, you can't say those things. You cannot suggest that we need to change. Then 1978 comes and the social pressure has gotten so large from multiple directions. Again, from the outside in, civil rights have happened. They're done. We are one of the very few entities left in the world who are still operating as if we're in the 1940s. And uh, the pressure from the outside in is significant. Please don't think it isn't. It is significant. The pressure from the bottom up is escalating. People are not going to be silent any longer. The leadership is getting pressure from all directions and the door is being smashed in. The leaders make a change. They make a change, but they can't have the members questioning where that change came from and what pressure caused that dogma to change. So we then place that 1978 doctrinal and policy change in the rhetoric of revelation. And it allows the church to move forward and acting as if the change came from the top down. But again, as we've talked about this entire episode, ask yourself, is it more rational or logical to believe that your church leadership were the ones who were pushing for progress or that the pressure from the outside in became so significant that they could not hold their dogma any longer. And when you look at any social change in the church, let's take the LGBT issue, which the church is right in the midst of shifting and moving. If you go back, say 30 years ago, let's talk about, maybe even go back just to 1995 when the uh, proclamation to the family comes out. To that point, the church was still in this midst of uh, the midst of being homosexual, being a choice, 
that Spencer W. Kimball's writings indicated that masturbation led to homosexuality, not having a strong, uh, not having a father in the home, having a mother who was too dominant caused homosexuality. Uh, there were all of this bad theology, bad doctrine, right? And uh, the church was not even saying nice things at all about people who were LGBT. Now, the church has made movements. Now, are, have those movements come because our leaders are just such good people that they're always pushing for progress and asking God, and it's God who is telling everybody to slow down. Like, hey, guys, I know you want to do some, some things where you love people, but I'm Jesus, and I'm just not ready for that. Or is it more rational and logical to look at these situations and go like, wow, science is changing, uh, the culture of the world is changing, even the young people of the church are becoming more loving of diversity and welcoming of people who are different, and the church is losing people, and it knows that if it holds this old ground, it will lose people at a faster rate than if it makes a change. And can you see all the noise, all the noise from the outside in and from the bottom up, and, and see that the changes your church makes is due to social pressure. No ifs, ands, or buts. Because if you look at every change made, if you look at these changes, isn't it odd that they always happen in the midst of where that issue is a dominant issue in the society in which that religious system is sitting? Like, is it just a coincidence that Jesus just suddenly prompts his leaders to love gay people more in the midst of a time in America where gay rights and membership of the church are, are, are raising voices that we need to do a better job of this? Man, what a strange coincidence. Isn't it odd that in 1978 we're addressing an issue of color right in this three-decade time period in America when those of color is the issue on the forefront of our society? Isn't it strange that the church addresses women's issues just as outside pressure and bottom-up pressure from women is calling for changes to be made? And, and the moment you start to say like, oh, my religious system is just another religious system, and my religious system would prefer to hold on to the way it used to do things, and it's only the context of the environment the context of the outside voices, the context of the voices from the bottom up that prompt my church to cave in and make changes, knowing that if it doesn't, it becomes really bad for them. And the moment you can just like let go that Mormonism is this different entity and it really does talk to God and all the other people who claim they talk to God, that's just not real, but my church is real because it really does talk to God and Jesus is really here and he really does communicate with my leaders. The moment you just let that go, like just send it off, like, like give it a kiss and then send it off into the wind. The moment you're willing to sit and look at your religious system as another religious system that acts just as other religious systems act, then all of a sudden you see like, wow, there really isn't any supernatural God magic going on here. These are just old guys 
who come from a certain time period. They're trying to hold on to the things their church has always held on to. They don't like criticism. They don't want their beliefs or the things they're helping the church hold on to being called into question. But as those voices on the outside and from the bottom up begin to get louder and louder, they eventually have to make a change. But when they make that change, they don't want you to perceive why they made that change. Now, let's go into the present moment. It is January 3rd, and just in the last few days, the church has in one fell swoop, removed all the patriarchy from its temple uh, endowment. And I assume from the other ordinances, although I I have not had quite the feedback yet uh, on those. So if we look, so let's look at this change from the perspective of what we've laid out today. Let's, and then we'll come back and we'll look at it the way the church wants us to. If my, if, if this whole conversation is true, then I think this whole temple change makes a lot of sense. So look at it. The church, since the beginning of its history, has spoken deeply about how temple ordinances are eternal. Temple covenants are eternal. And they were given from God to Joseph Smith, and they are not to be altered or changed. Now, I know you're getting a different message from the church, but you're going to have to trust me here, and I will put the quotes in the episode notes. If you read those quotes, you're going to sense that there was a time and a place where the church deeply believed those covenants could not be changed or altered. They were eternal. They were to be left alone, and they were to be done the way that they were told they were to be done and not to be challenged. So there's that. Now, as pressure from the outside in and from the bottom up, whether it's embarrassment that there are people who are showing the temple ordinances online, whether it's the women of the church who say the garments are not comfortable, whether it is uh, the fact that young people find the endowment session to be boring or too long, whether it's the patriarchy that's in those ceremonies, in those rituals, there are voices that have been getting stronger and stronger that this isn't working and our church is losing people so just in the last few days the change that the church made if you go look at the changes and we will list those in the episode notes as well listen to these changes i'll name them here listen to these changes ask yourself what is the church addressing what are they seeing as the problem and what are they doing to resolve it. The phrasing of return in report is removed. God now speaks to Adam and Eve equally. The once separate promises of obedience for man and woman are meshed into a single covenant. Remember, men used to covenant to obey God and women used to covenant to obey their husbands as their husbands obey God. And now The entire room, both male and female, men and women, are asked to covenant to obey God. The robes are no longer applied at the Aaronic priesthood level. They're only applied at the Melchizedek priesthood level. And the slippers are no longer uh, removed and put back on. They're not part of the outfit. So they don't need to be removed and put back on. The law of the gospel is now called the higher law. The law of chastity is expressed with much more gender equality 
There is no difference or less difference between the way that covenant is applied to women and applied to men. At the end, Adam and Eve both speak to the audience and Eve gets to have the last word. Women are no longer veiled in the temple. And the time of the endowment session is reduced about 25 minutes. Now ask yourself, what was the problem? So we want to say this was revelation. The leaders went into the temple on Thursday evening. They said a prayer. The voice of Jesus comes in and they know without beyond a shadow of a doubt that they need to make these changes. No. Again, look at it from the paradigm I presented. The church perceived there was a problem. It's young people are leaving at significant numbers. I think the last time I heard it was 73% of all of our young members are inactive by the age of 21. And that was several years ago. My gut tells me it's higher today. People are criticizing the church for its patriarchy, that men are obviously um, at some higher level valued more by Mormonism than its women. The endowment session was criticized for being too long and too boring. But here's what the church did. The church took eternal covenants it said would never change. A woman used to covenant to obey her husband. That was taught by Mormonism to be an eternal covenant that was unchangeable, unalterable. The church now has to change it in order to slow down the exodus of young people out of the church. The church now has to battle this. It's made changes that it, from a person who understands the church's history and doctrine, a, a believing member would look at all this and go, oh, wait a minute, hold on a minute. We, we, were, we were told that wouldn't change. We were told those were eternal. I, I don't understand. Like there's reason for people to struggle with how to reconcile this with the previous way they had put the church together. So what does the church do? It needs to cushion itself from criticism and from conversation that talks about this issue. So at the very beginning of the endowment session, they have added a short little couple of minute video of the leadership of the church telling members that they are not to talk about not only these changes, but they are not to talk about the ordinances in the temple at all outside of the temple. Now, go into your mind for a moment. What things in the temple have you promised that you've covenanted not to share outside the temple? You have promised not to share the signs and the tokens of those, of those covenants. You haven't promised to share you haven't promised not to share anything else. In fact, Boyd K. Packer and other LDS authors have written tons of books on the ordinances of the temple. This is new, and there's a reason it's there. They're, they're trying to play on the feeling we all had that we were all kind of like, we didn't know what we could talk about and what we couldn't talk about. And some people overreached and said, don't talk about any of it. That way we just know we don't cross a line. And the leadership of the church right now is playing on that fear we have with each other and the need to signal to each other that we're willing to fit in the tribe and belong. But what they just asked us to do was new. Don't talk about the ordinances of the temple outside the temple. That's never been taught 
by LDS leadership before. Why? Because they don't want members, old members, who went through the temple the old way prior to 1991, and then members who are a little younger like me, who do the, who do the, the, the temple a different way, and then these young people who are now going through and there's zero patriarchy. They don't want us all communicating with each other and hashing out like, hey, I know you did it this way, but back in when I was younger, we used to do this and it used to hurt women and it used to be offensive and it used to be very patriarchal. They don't want you having that conversation. And, and so, hey, it's a revelation. Don't talk about it. Don't share any of this outside the temple. That's what religious systems do when they have to change their dogma. Because when we change our dogma, these are things we said we never would change. These are always true. They're true forever. It brings into question the truth claims of that religious system. And so I'll simply end today saying, can you see how Mormonism shields itself from any real discussion of whether its claims add up or not? Can you see how it shields itself from having its dogma challenged? And then when the voices get too loud and it has to change its dogma anyway, it shields itself from the members being able to freely have a conversation about the why that dogma changed, about what led up to that dogma changing, about why they were doing it wrong in the first place. Because every religious system that's unhealthy has to maintain that it stays the same forever, even as it changes every moment. It has to protect that its leaders are the real source of inspiration and revelation, even though the real revelation is coming from the outside in and the bottom up. And every religious system doesn't add up. And so every religious system protects itself and shields itself from its members uh, feeling comfortable listening to the outside voices, listening to the voices on the margins within its tribe, and having conversations about where all this data goes and what this data means. And so if you can see through Mormonism that Mormonism is just another religious system, and it has the same mechanisms that they all do, and that in the inside, all of these things work to keep you thinking this works the way these leaders want you to think it works, but that in reality, it is anything but. This has been the Cognitive Dissidents Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. And to be perfectly frank, there have been times when members or leaders in the church have simply made mistakes. There may have been things said or done that were not in harmony with our values, principles, or doctrine. Brothers and sisters, stay in the boat. Use your life jackets. Hold on with both hands. Avoid distractions. Give Brother Joseph a break. Some have asserted that more members are leaving the church today and that there is more doubt and unbelief than in the past. This is simply not true. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has never been stronger. How can homosexual members of the church... First, I want to change the question. There are no homosexual members of the church. Questions are honored, but opposition is not. 
I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those will, I think, be the ones we avoid. Doubt your doubts. 